let's dig in a little more into Revelation chapter 5 this morning in order to kind of better understand what's going on in this scene that this lamb who was slain is given such worship. Now, again, we've already, we've already read the text this morning, so I'm not going to reread it for us, but I do want to connect the dots again. Keep in mind, as we transition from Revelation 4 into Revelation 5, same vision, same throne room, same God the Father on the throne, surrounded by the 24 elders, representative of the church in all ages, worshiping him, surrounded by the four living creatures, representative of all living creatures to the ends of the earth, north, south, east, and west, all worshiping the Father. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come. And as we transition into Revelation chapter 5 now, we come to John is still gazing up, and he notices something that he had not previously seen. In the Father's right hand is a scroll. And he tells us that there were words written on that scroll, front and back. Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And as chapter 5 unfolds, John is going to take us through a, a series of stages, if you will. I think that's probably the easiest way for us to just kind of find some handles on this to deal with it, certain stages along the way. And the first stage here is just the scroll itself. He sees this scroll in the hand, literally, the, the Greek there is on the hand of God. It's, it's like it's placed there. It's not that he's now all of a sudden reached. It's like it's been there. This scroll is on God's hand, but it's sealed. Now, why is it there? It's because he's the author of it. He's the author of the scroll. And as the author, he reserves the right. He reserves the authority. He's the one who has the, the right to dictate who is worthy to approach his throne and to take that out of his hand and to open his scroll. Now, here again, curious minds want to know what is this scroll. It would be helpful if anywhere else in the book of Revelation John or an angel or somebody would have stopped and said, okay, before we go any further, let me tell you what this scroll is. You can look. It's not there. We don't have that. But there's no shortage of speculation as to what this scroll is. Some think it's the book of life in which is named every uh, person, every elect redeemed of God throughout eternity. Others think the scroll may be the Old Testament it's sealed up, and Christ is the only one who's able to open it because the Old Testament is about him. These are just some things that, that uh, some people have suggested, but ultimately, and there are reasons why I would probably say it's neither one of those two, it seems best to see this book as containing, this scroll as containing, God's eternal purposes in human history. God's eternal purposes in human history, the content of human history from before the foundation of the world, the course of human history from before the foundation of the world, and of course, the consummation or the conclusion of the, God's history of humanity, of the world, as he intends it in Jesus Christ. There are allusions to this. We're not going to take time to go in Ezekiel and in Daniel that this letter here has to do with the fullness of history. 
Basically, it's the written record of, in Genesis 3.15, the unfolding of the story of redemption. We have a battle that's, that, that, that it, it comes to pass. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this scroll, if I could paint it this way, is the story of that battle. The scroll is the written record of who wins that battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And keep in mind, as we're transitioning into chapter 5 and chapter 6, we still have these same two things going on, though now the seed of the woman has been identified as Jesus Christ, and in Revelation 5, he's the lamb who was slain. In Revelation 5, 6, 7, as going forward, the seed of the serpent is still alive, but now he's matured into a dragon. It is the exact same story going on here that was established in Genesis 3.15. And the scroll is the unfolding of all that is going on, of who will win and how he's going to win. It includes everything, including redemption and judgment. We keep in mind that any time we come upon numbers in the book of Revelation, we're looking at symbolism. This scroll is secured by seven seals, which again, seven, we've seen it with the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit, the seven churches, seven symbolizes completion, fullness. It is the fullness of history, the completion of human history. And the fact that this document is protected signifies it's complete. There's nothing more to be added. What God had planned from eternity past, from alpha to omega, from, from beginning to end, he is sovereign. He's in control. It is his plans, his purposes for his glory. It is complete. It is full. It goes back to what we saw in the throne room from chapter 4. God is not pacing the throne room of floor of heaven, unsure of world events, unsure of these world powers, unsure that I don't know how this is going to end. He's the author of the scroll that sits upon his right hand. And the future is secure. There's nothing to be added. There's nothing that can alter it. Furthermore, the scroll is to be considered complete and inaccessible. Unless there's one who's found worthy to take it and open it. And here's, the, here's why. As we continue reading verse 2, John says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This signifies for us, this is more than just the unrolling of the scroll as intended information to fill our curious minds. That wouldn't produce loud weeping and wailing uncontrollably. If this scroll is not taken and unfolded, what is coming to pass here? If the seals remain in place on this scroll, which signifies God's eternal plans and purposes, his fulfillment of those promises he's made, if those seals remain in place, then the contents will not be revealed and nothing will happen. Everything hinges upon these seven seals being opened and the discouragement, the emotion that we see from John 
And this angel who proclaims with a loud voice that no one is worthy to open the scroll seems to indicate that even the whole of the book of Revelation is hanging in the balance. And what is the whole of the book of Revelation? This is a great time to pause and remember the context. This was written to seven churches of Asia Minor who are going through their own ups and downs, five of which they're pretty much worthless churches. Two, they're on the right track, but they're far from perfect. And they've both been told, if you conquer, you have these promises. But the problem is, all seven of them don't have a single member who can conquer. And guess what? Those seven churches are representative of every church in every age of every one of us. Our conquering, as we saw in chapter, at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, is dependent upon this throne room, is dependent upon what's happening up here. And if this scroll doesn't open, there will be no conquering. For the seven churches. No conquering for you and I. And those promises God made to those who conquer, well, no one gets to receive them. Everything in the whole of the book of Revelation is dependent upon what is written on this scroll and upon those seals being opened, those seven wax seals, right? Just takes one wax seal to seal a document. There's seven. things that the Lord has said earlier in the book of Revelation that will come to pass, that he will purify his people. We've seen him say that. That he will bring vindication to his great name because the Roman Empire and the world and, and the, the great dragon, the seed of the woman, excuse me, seed of the serpent, is reaping havoc upon the, the glory and the greatness of God. God says, I'm going to vindicate my name against these forces. And the enabling of the children, his children to conquer, these are promises he's made. All that depends on someone being able to take the scroll, open the seals, and unravel the promises of God. And so as John's eyes are gazing upon that scroll, he's faced with that poignant moment. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Is there anyone worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God? Is there anyone? God has eternal plans and purposes. Can anyone accomplish it is ultimately what's going on here. Is there anyone who can take what God the Father has said he will do and bring it to pass? Because this is not just mythology. This is not just a story. This is not just a... In time, there has to be one who brings the plans of God to pass. There has to be one to do what the Father has said he will do for his people. And though the throne is surrounded by 24 elders representative of the church and four living creatures, creatures as impressive as they are, and myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels, and to be quite honest, they, they scare the daylights out of me because of how powerful they are, how strong they are, how creepy they are, but, but just the, the force by which they stand. Yet they are not worthy to go before the throne. Do you see the helplessness, the despair that John is experiencing? And I don't think it's an accident that chapter 4 was revealed to us in such detail that we might understand just how great this challenge is. Who is worthy to approach? 
approach this God on his throne and take that eternal scroll, his scroll, his plans and purposes from his almighty right hand. Who is, let's go back to Revelation chapter 4, who's going to cross that expansive sea of glass? Who in the world, who's going to make their way past these impressive four living creatures and these 24 elders who day and night worship and even they veil themselves? And who in the world is going to approach this throne, endure, go back to chapter 4, the frightening thunder, the peals of lightning, the explosions around the throne? Who's going to approach the one on the throne of whom it is said, you cannot approach him and live? The one on this throne is a terrifying God. So much more than how we portray him today. He's our buddy. That old man on the, on the upstairs. He's our best friend. Now those are, there, there are truths surrounding those concepts. But that, none of those capture the holiness of God. He is holy. He is eternal. And there's a reason there's thunder and lightning. The the ground shakes around him. He is a terrifying God. And anyone who has any sense at all will tremble in his presence. If you're like me, we read this Revelation chapter 5 kind of cursory, kind of quickly. And we're like, just go get it. And that speaks to how little, even in that moment, that quick thought. We have failed to understand the majesty of the one on that throne. We have failed to understand the gravity of the situation. Is there anyone who can approach that throne and live and take that scroll and bring it to pass? Paul goes out to the far reaches of the universe. Who is worthy to open it? Dead silence. No one can approach this throne. No one can take this scroll. No one can bring it to pass. No angel can do it. It has to be a human. This is the record of human history. This is God's plan for his glory through the ages in taking rebel humans who have rejected him and transforming them into a kingdom of priests. An angel cannot do that. It has to be a human. No angel can do it. No human can do it. Because that throne can only be approached by somebody who's sinless and perfect and righteous. John looks. There's nobody who meets those qualifications. Nobody who is human and sinless who can go and put his hands on the Father's scroll. Therefore, that scroll is permanently sealed, forever closed. no guarantee to the end of the story.
The fact is, that's where some of us live, isn't it? For some of us, the story stops right there. And in our daily lives, the things that come to pass, the tragedies, the heartaches, the afflictions, the battles with sin, temptation, it feels like there's no guarantee how the story will end. And like John, we often weep. We feel helpless. We feel hopeless. We feel angry. Depressed, cynical. We all have different personalities. We respond in different ways. But we feel the gravity of a situation, and it feels like it's hopeless. It's helpless. And if we stop right here, we can identify with John, who's wailing and moaning and has no confidence in the future, has no confidence in the promises of God, has no hope in them, because as he stands right there, the scroll is sealed, and they cannot come to pass. John weeps loudly, not small little drops of moisture around the corner of his eyes. He's wailing. The hope of the seven churches, the hope of every one of us is tied to the unfolding of that scroll, which not only reveals the contents of God's story of redemption in history, the battle between the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, the dragon, and the lamb who was slain, not only just reveals the content, but it sets forth the events as described in the motion. And he understands that book's not opened, there will be no conquering. Friends, can I tell you, if that book stays closed, there will be no salvation. If that book stands closed, there will be no forgiveness of sins. There will be no vindication. Is there anyone who can take the promises of God and bring him to pass. I know you know the answer to that. Don't rush to it. We have to feel the gravity of this. We have to feel the gravity of helplessness and hopelessness. Don't we find ourselves sometimes wondering as we look out into the world, will the divine plan, which hey, on a Sunday morning we're quick to say it's eternal, it's fixed, it's set, but don't we often wrestle in our own personal lives? Is that plan of God going unrealized? Will, will there, it doesn't seem like there's going to be justice for evildoers. We look around, evil runs rampant. Where's the justice we're promised? Oppressors of God's people, whether it be Satan, whether it be the world, whether it be our own flesh. Now, where's the justice that we see promised? The vindication given to the people of God. Might evil actually end? Where, where is the victory that we're promised? So often in our day, it just seems as if the bad guys are winning. And we wonder, might the bad guy win the seed of the serpent? 
Unfortunately, that's not where it ends. The second thing you notice in verse 5, an elder comes to John and says, John, you're seeing the scroll. You're not seeing the whole picture. Keep looking. Keep looking. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, Greek way of saying, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What does he see there? The descriptions there that he gives come straight from the Old Testament, so we, we don't have to guess. He says, look, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the, the messianic fulfillment of Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob is looking toward the future. He's blessing his, his children, his sons. And when he gets to Judah, right, he promises Judah that the future ruler of the entire nation of Israel will come from his line. The line of the tribe of Judah. It sure seems like David's dynasty has been cut off. That whole tree cut down leaving only a stump and its root. But some 800 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah had a vision in which he saw fresh growth emerge out of that stump that remained. Fresh growth that emerged from the, that that was still there. What's he talking about there? God's plan of redemption goes on. Even though it looks like they're in exile, it looks like it's over, it will not end. And the angel says, as you're looking at this to John, behold, look. The one that was prophesied about, the Messiah, he's in the picture. He's right there. Keep looking. And I think a question we need to ask, why can the lion of the tribe of Judah take and open the scroll when none of the other 24 elders or none of the other four living creatures can? Now, we've already talked about that it has to be human. We've already talked about because of the majesty, it has to be uh, sinless, it has to be perfect. But verse 5 clues us in even more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. It's this conquering and it's not by accident. This is the same thing that Christ calls each of the seven churches to do. To you who conquer, you get this promise. Problem is, I can't conquer. We're in big trouble. Come up to the throne room and look. Here's all this. The problem is, the scroll is closed. No one is there. How will we conquer? Keep looking. There's one, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered. Dots are connecting here. He has conquered. Now here's what we've got to stop and think about. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. I know how lions tend to conquer. I say I do. I've never been face to face. But they tend to maul. They tend to destroy. They tend to kill. They tend to, it's not a pretty picture. I know how a lion conquers. By devouring the enemy. But that's not how this one conquers. Verse 6 clues us in. And between the throne and the four living creatures. So again, the angel said, behold, look. So John's looking. I, I, I found between the four living creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb. 
standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We're not reading it right. If we don't at least pause there and say, well, he said lion of the tribe of Judah. And I look and I saw a lamb. What's happening here? Well, this is uh, apocalyptic language. In the book of Revelation and in apocalyptic literature, uh, you can take, mix your metaphors in a way that it comes together in one person. That's what we see going on here. But here's what I want to make sure we understand, is that we're not envisioning two creatures here, a lion and a lamb, but rather the lion is the lamb. And John mixes these images for our good to help us to understand the significance of this one. And what is strange is that the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered, and lions tend to maul, destroy, maim, kill. It gets ugly and it gets bloody. Looks like a lamb who's had his cutthroat. Looks like a lamb that has been Killed, that's bleeding from the jugular. And this is John's way of telling us this line of the tribe of Judah doesn't conquer by killing, at least not yet. For now, this lion is a lamb who conquers. By dying. We're rapidly approaching chapter 6. And there's coming a day. He will conquer by killing. But for now, this is mercy and this is grace. The line of the tribe of Judah has conquered by dying. Now, here's the thing. Think back to when we know who the line of the tribe of Judah is. We know who the It's Christ. Think back on the day that, that Jesus died. There, there were two criminals who died right there with him. They, 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 why didn't they qualify to open the scroll? They died. Same day, same place as Jesus. It's because, skip down to verse 9. In the celebration of the Lamb, they sang a new song. That's the 24 elders. That's the four living creatures. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he didn't stop there. We talked about it in the prayer meeting this morning. The same God who redeemed and ransomed his enemy, he conquered them, not by killing them, by dying for them, to redeem them, to adopt them. But then he constituted his enemy to make them a kingdom of priests unto him. A kingdom of people devoted to him. What kind of a God takes his enemies and makes them his people, his family, devoted to him? There's only one. Never in history has there been one who treats every other world force, world power, influence. You conquer your enemies by killing. This one conquers by dying. And this is the point. Christ died 
is Christ's death. To you who conquer, message to the seven churches, churches, you will be promised this, that, and the other. And I don't say that despairingly. There were massive promises, but they were unique to each church. I've never conquered a day in my life. How in the world? The one who conquered for you by dying for you. You conquer through this one. His death upon the cross. But notice also, the lion who looks like a lamb whose jugular has been cut, who's bled out, bleeding out, is not slumped over like a dead carcass. What do we see in verse 6? What's the position of the lamb? He's standing, not slumped over. He's standing. What's the point? He's obviously been slain. You don't cut the jugular and live. But he's standing. What's the point? He rose from the dead. Up from the grave, he arose. He died, and he rose again. He's, this slaughtered lamb has been raised from the dead. Obviously pointing us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is pointing us to something we've already referenced, this great battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, that's been going on immediately, Cain and Abel. You have seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. They're at battle, one kills the other, and that's the ongoing narrative of world history. But here, when we see the lamb who was slain but is standing, what we have here is... The great battle has already been fought. The great enemy of God, sin and death and the devil, they did their worst. They did their best. And look at the lamb. He's a bloody mess. He died. But that lamb conquered. Because after sin and devil and the death did their worst, that lamb, bleeding out the jugular and all, walks out of the grave, and he stands. And in this throne room here, he's there. His victory has been achieved through his death, through a sacrifice. He's coming again. And he's going to conquer his enemies in a different way. But by grace, now, until he returns, it's mercy and grace. Can you imagine? And you've got to try to put yourself in his shoes from where he was just a moment ago, hopeless and in despair. And can I say probably where some of us may be this morning? We've come here, we've got life circumstances, hopeless and despair, and we'd like to sit here and, and sing these songs and say, it's okay, my faith is strong, God's got this, so on and so forth. And those may be true, but we don't feel it here. Well, here, John feels it here. Who is worthy to take it? 24 elders? No. 
Nobody. Four living creatures, no angels, myriads. That, there's thousands of you, anybody. No. Any human, anybody. No, nobody. And in an instant, I can't help but wonder if in John's mind, so much of the Old Testament all of a sudden makes sense. Like, for instance, when Isaac said to his father there on Mount Moriah, where's the sacrifice going to come from, Dad? To which his father replied, the Lord will provide. And provide he did. Provided a lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, we see these ceremonies, the, the, the people of God celebrating Passover and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. You came and you brought a lamb for sacrifice, to die, to cut the jugular, to make it bleed out. Isaiah says about the coming Messiah, he would be like a lamb led to slaughter. And if we teeter into the New Testament, you have John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of a sudden, as John is looking at this, it's all coming together. This whole thing has been about that one. The, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the, the sacrifices, the lamb that was provided in place of Isaac, the, the promise of the Messiah, everything. It's all been about this one. And in verse 7, the lamb, he went and took. That lamb went and took the scroll. And this is, it rushes right through this. But this is a momentous moment. He takes the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And, and you've got to imagine it this way. It's got to be a human. It's got to be a perfect human. And according to verse 5, it's got to be a conquering human because all humans are, there's none righteous, no, not one. You've got to imagine as Christ reaches out to that scroll, for that scroll in that moment, the bleeding out from the jugular. It's not the hand of Jesus that's most important. It's the blood that makes contact with that scroll. It's the blood. And again, I'm just picturing that for you. There's nothing in the text that says that, but that's what was necessary. The blood to take that scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, then the four living creatures, the 24 elders, all fell down before the lamb. This is not idolatry because they're falling before the throne. There's not two different gods here they're worshiping. It speaks to the triune God. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They fall down and they sing a new song here in chapter 5. Worthy are you, the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. It is Christ and the redemptive work of Christ that leads to this eruption of praise. An avalanche of praise that now is just heaped upon the Lamb because He's the Lamb who was slain, who's standing, who is now able to take the scroll, remove the seals, and the promises of God will come to pass through Him. What's the point? Jesus is the centerpiece of it all. He's the hinge of it all. It's through Him and for Him 
that God created all things. We read that in Paul's writings, in Romans, and in Ephesians. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the centerpiece. Christ is the hinge. Everything was made by Christ, for Christ, through Christ, to Christ, unto Christ. All that exists, exists for the purpose of admiring and enjoying and relishing and rejoicing in the beauty and the majesty of Christ, in who he is, in his victory over sin, in his victory over death, in his victory over the devil, in that our conquering is only through his conquering. So you got the scroll that cannot be opened. You have the lion of the tribe of Judah who turns out to be the conquering savior who can take it and can open it. And then the final thing we've already begun seeing is you have the worship of the lamb, the praise and the glory that is due. The elders, the four living creatures. We, verse 12 speaks of the myriads and myriads of angels, the, the thousand tongues that sing the great Redeemer's praise. They all say with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I mean, they just cannot stop heaping superlatives. This one is worthy of everything, wealth and power and wisdom and might and hope and honor and glory and blessing. And our human language, we just fall out of words, but it's all there. He's worthy of it all. To which, in verse 14, the four living creatures all sing the amen. Truly, verily, absolutely. He is worthy. Why is there this outpouring of praise and worship? Because they've seen something, something that we've had the opportunity to look at for years and years and years, but maybe we've missed. So they had the opportunity to see something. They know who it is on that throne, and they know the contents of that scroll, and they know what's at stake, if no one can get to that scroll and unfold it and unravel it, that the promises of God are null and void. There is no hope. There is no future. There is no victory. There is no conquering. There is no salvation. But then, lo and behold, there's one who meets the qualifications, one who is worthy through his death and his resurrection we just sang about to go and take the scroll and open it. And there we learn that worship begins with education. I don't mean to sound intellectual there, but worship begins with education. Paying attention to who God is, who Christ is, what he's done, feeling it here, and producing within that heart joy and delight and satisfaction. Now please don't hear me saying that the, the ultimate purpose of theology is knowledge. Or the ultimate purpose of preaching and teaching is knowledge. Though you can't have worship without knowledge, the ultimate purpose of worship, of, of preaching and teaching, and of reading books and so on and so forth, is worship. Knowing this lamb who was slain and yet stands, and knowing that all of our conquering, all of our hope, despite what your circumstances or even your flesh tells you this morning, there's no hope. I'm tired, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, so on and so forth. The lion of the tribe of Judah, 
is the lamb who was slain. I think Christians today, our greatest need, it's, it's not that we don't know the things we just read about here. Any one of you could have stood up here and talked about the death and resurrection of, and could have done so more eloquently than I'm capable. We don't have a lack of knowledge. I, I sat back here just to watch and watching my own soul, us sing about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm like you. We have a personality that maybe we're not comfortable singing. Maybe some, for some at all, others, you know. I would imagine these beings around the throne have their own personality too. They're not robots. But with a vision of who Christ is, not just a knowledge up here, man, their worship is just explosive. And I can't help but wonder for us, we don't need fresh knowledge of Jesus. We've got that. We need a fresh vision of his splendor and glory at a new level than we've seen before. And the problem is, and this is where I struggle. This may not be your struggle. This is where I struggle. Life can have its, take its toll and its effects, and we kind of turn inward and become preoccupied with ourselves and our own needs and our own struggles and our own frustrations. And just sometimes you hate yourself and, and so on and so forth that it's hard to untangle that mess. And then we come here on a Sunday morning and then sing glorious truths, but I'm tied up in knots here. And I'm right there with you. But what Revelation 4 and 5 is telling us is what we are no different than those seven churches. They were tangled up in knots too. Now there were two that were exceptional, not perfect, but five of them and they were a mess. Just like us. And what those beleaguered believers needed in the first century is the exact same thing, the beleaguered believers at Covenant Life Church or across our landscape need today to see the Lamb, the glory of the Lamb. What John saw was reality. You know, we live in a day today, you can go to the movies and you look on the screen and I mean, it's just action-packed. It's, I mean, explosions and buildings doing this, that, and the other. And it, it can kind of, Revelation 4, the peals of thunder, the lightning, ground shaking and everything. It's like, that is incredible. How do they do that? And then uh, you watch a documentary on TV and it's like, it's, it's all computer generated. None of it's real. <laughs> the actors, are, there's a green screen back there and they're jumping and doing this, but all that's just computer. And it's like, oh, that's takes away from it a little bit. There's nothing computer generated here in Revelation 4 or 5. This is the reality. The God on the throne. The worship. The lion. Who was, the lamb who was slain. Who's worthy of worship. Who takes the scroll. He opens it. And he is the one who brings to pass all of God's promises. And we conquer through him. That's why they're saying, worthy is the Lord. And my prayer for us, for me, 
is that the Spirit would implant in our hearts, causing our affections to come alive. Now, Samantha reminded me just a moment ago, we're about to do a video up here. (laughs) And I just said, so much of it, our focus is on the words. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the King. And I just simply ask you to stand and join me as we add our voices to the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands who are worshiping the Lamb on His throne right now. And even as I'm singing with you, we're singing, we pray, God, make this the earnest reality of my heart. Let's stand together. Let's sing. Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you for the